Preparation for living in difficult days. Um, over the last several weeks, we have been talking about Diedrich Bonhoeffer and how he and a small group of prisoners lived together in a community of faith, even though they were imprisoned, and what helped them get through that. And we've looked at various aspects of their time together. And uh, one of the things I kind of overlooked last week as far as walking through the progression of the book, is I kind of skipped around a bit because I knew that today we were going to have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's table. And I wanted to save that aspect of what he taught concerning his local fellowship of imprisoned believers went through as far as communion until today. You know, and as Diedrich Bonhoeffer lived in this community with his fellow prisoners, uh, two of his privileged activities that he shared with his fellow believers were confession and communion. Many of us can understand the concept of sharing communion together. We do it very often. Often in our church, at least every month, we take an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper and uh, come together as a church family to commemorate and to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us. However, confession is often another subject. Uh, today we're going to explore these two activities and see what they are and how these activities might draw us close to one another. And uh, so just by the very fact of talking about confession and communion, it may make several of us uncomfortable. But I hope that that's not the case. I hope it's an opportunity for us to just look internally and to see why they practice this and why it helped them get through difficult days that they were living in. And so uh, as we get started this morning, let's just take a moment and pray and ask God's blessing on the sermon as we go forward. Lord, we come before you, Lord. We ask that you would just work in our hearts, Lord, that we would draw us, be drawn closer to you. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and our lives, Lord, that we may understand all that you have for us this day. And Lord, may we, as we are challenged with these two areas of, really, Lord, opportunities to draw close to one another through confession and communion, Lord God, might we be willing to do that? Might we be willing to, Lord in many ways, humble ourselves as we come together to learn from one another, to grow forward with one another. And Lord, uh, become more Christ-like as a result of that. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the very premise of confession is found in James chapter 5, verse 16, which states, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, there are several key words in that passage of Scripture that I want to draw attention to. And uh, I've drawn attention to some aspects of this verse in the past, but I'm going to remind you again, I like the outdoors. I like uh, being in the woods. I am a hunter. I grew up in a family that loved firearms and hunting and so forth. And uh, But there's something in this verse that I really just don't care for. It's the idea of trespassing. How many of you have ever seen on a property line a sign that says, no trespassing? Raise your hand. Right. Every one of us have seen that one time or another. Well, the very idea behind trespassing is that there is a line that you cannot step across. Uh, as a younger man, I had the privilege of hunting on some private ground, and I had about 120 acres at my disposal in one area, another 80 at another area. But I was often convinced that the big deer were on that side of the property line. And of course, the guys on that side of the property line were all convinced that the big deer were on my side. Well, I was convinced because I saw them run that way. 
Well, they were convinced because they saw him run this way. And the bottom line is there was this line that, uh, you know, because of the ownership of the, of the land, I couldn't go across that line because I didn't know who the owner was and didn't have permission to be over there. And they didn't know who our owner was and didn't have permission to be on my side. But the, regardless, there was a line that we could not pass over. And if we did, there was a legal situation that would take place called trespassing. Well, here's the problem with us as believers. Every one of us were born as trespassers. See, God has a line that is drawn, and He says in Romans 3.23, He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. In fact, Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and because of one man, everybody was born on the wrong side of the line. We are all sinners. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We were born without an ability in and of ourselves to be on the right side. We didn't have a choice in the matter. We were born right there on the wrong side. We were born in our trespasses. In other words, we have crossed the line. And he says here, says, Confess your trespasses. So every one of us, here's the idea. We all know the areas that we struggle in. Every one of us knows the areas of sin that are taking hold in our lives. Every one of us knows the areas of sinfulness that we get involved in, get involved in. And here's the idea. We are to confess those to one another. Now, this is what it does not mean. Hey, George. Hey, how's it going, George? Uh, yeah, yeah, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, Pastor. Hey, let me just tell you, this week I went down, I got, you know, I did some really bad things. I yelled at somebody. I screamed at somebody. Made them feel just as little as they could. I made, they felt so little they could sit on a dime and dangle their feet. I just want you to know I did it really good this week and decided to let you know. Is that what it means? No. Hey, Pastor. Hey, hey, how's it going, George? Yeah, I just want you to know I looked at some really inappropriate things on the computer this week. Decided to let you know it is cool. Is that what it means? No. You say, anybody that does that is like crazy. They're just weird. What it means is, as a believer, there ought to be people that we can go to in confidence and say, you know what, I'm struggling with this. Would you pray for me? Why? Because he says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That you may have victory. That you may have an ability to overcome in the struggles of sinfulness that you're involved with. So he says, first of all, confess your trespasses to one another. Then it says, pray. In other words, and when that brother tells me something that they're struggling with, I'm not saying, oh, hold on a second. George, you wouldn't believe what Pastor just told me. We don't go to other people. We don't plaster it for the world to see. We take it to the one who can help, who is Jesus Christ. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. The bottom line is, we take it to God and we pray. Why? The third key word, or key phrase, that we may be healed, so that we can have victory. And here's what it says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Here's the idea. I don't know who in this auditorium is a righteous person. You see, man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. I mean, I could look at many people in this auditorium and every Sunday morning say, Hey, welcome to Harvest. Good to see you this morning. How's things going? And the pet answer is often great. Fine. Wonderful. Good to see you too. Hope you're well. And we can very often walk right through the doors, right past our other fellow believers, living in sinfulness, and no one else knows, but God knows. 
We're going to be talking about that just for a moment. Bonhoeffer makes an interesting statement concerning our sinfulness and how it keeps us from really having true fellowship. Uh, as I did in the beginning, I want to read a couple pages here that I thought were really good. On page 110, he talks about confessing our faults one to another. Think about this. I had to read this three or four times to really get what he was saying. And I know you'll be smarter than me and you'll get it the first time. But just listen with me just for a moment. It says, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship in service may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers, as devout people, they do not have fellowship as undevout as sinners. What is he saying here? He says we can walk in together and we can sing together and we can praise God together and we never confront one another about our sins. And by the way, that is just as sinful as some of us never dealing with sin. Because God says in Galatians 6.1, you that are spiritual are to help restore those who are fallen. In John chapter 14, I believe, or 16, it talks about the idea of coming coming around and strengthening one another who's involved. The bottom line is we don't want to get into their business. We want them in our business. So therefore, we stay resoundedly in our sin. We can come together, sing together, worship together, and continue in our private sin together. And... Assume no one else knows about it. He goes on to say, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. What's he saying here? In all of our spirituality, in all of our piousness, we kind of look down on people who are involved in sin. Because I'm not like they are. And uh, I don't deal with that sin. My sin is different than their sin. Their sin is much worse than my sin. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. Because we dare not be sinners. Why? We don't want anyone else to know with what we struggle. Nobody. We even try to hide it from God even though we can't. We sure certainly try. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered amongst the righteous. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe it? I, I was just I, I was just appalled that they would do that. Because, right, their sin is worse than your sin. Oh, we don't say it out loud. But as he says, many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered amongst the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, we are sinners. Certain sins will never be forgiven in some people's eyes. In fact, in the eyes of the pious, the righteous, the super-spiritual, God's grace is only sufficient for some. Now, there's not a one of us that actually believes the theology behind that, but the reality is that's how we treat some people. You know, God can and does forgive a little fib, because after, after all, it's just a little tiny lie. It's not that big of a deal. Nobody is going to remember it. It's just a small thing. Don't worry about it. God will forgive you. And yes, God does forgive, and so do people. After a while, it's forgotten. God can and does forgive a small theft. I mean, after all, they've got so many of them, they'll never miss it. It's no big deal. God, it's good. God forgive me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have took it. And soon forgotten. God can and does forgive a wrong thought. Lord, I know I shouldn't have thought that way, and yeah, I know it's wrong. You know, Lord, I'm sorry. I Help me not to think this way anymore. And 
long done and over with. But how about divorce? God can and does forgive. What I found out over the last 30 years of ministry is that people don't. I mean, you can do anything you want, but you cannot serve in the church because you've got this divorce and you can't get over it. But God's forgiven. Yeah, but I know God's forgiven you, but you cannot serve. I've watched this for 30 years. Because somehow their divorce is worse than you're looking at pornography. Their divorce is worse than your sinful attitude. Their divorce is worse than your lying and cheating and stealing. Oh, we'd never say it, but that's how we treat them. God can and does forgive homosexuality, but I'm not going to forgive it. Bottom line is, now I'm referring to someone's life once they've repented of these things, obviously. But what I found over the years is that God forgives. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. And yet sometimes we as His people don't offer the same grace and mercy and forgiveness. And a lot of times it's not even our place to forgive. But we hold it against them. This is where God's grace does step in. I love what He says here. But it is the grace of the Gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand. It's so hard for the spiritual, the really religious people to understand. That it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner. Great and desperate sinner. Now come. As the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you. He doesn't want your sacrifice or work. He wants you. That's where God's grace steps in. In John chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. We've sang the song, Grace on Top of Grace. We've all been experiencing God's grace because the very fact that we know Him, He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. There's not a one of us in this room this morning that in and of ourselves could save ourselves. Right? Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us. There's not a one of us who can save ourselves. We are experiencers of God's grace. And He says we've experienced grace on top of grace. Over and over, God is gracious. We don't deserve it, but yet He gives it to us. And especially when we take our sinfulness to God in prayer, 1 John 1 9 says, when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's God's grace. Amen? We don't deserve it, but He gives it to us. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that the denying God, ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What does right grace cause us to do? It causes us to understand what God has done for us, and in turn, we live for Him. That's experiencing God's grace. And we should not cheapen God's grace, by the way. Three times alone in Romans it says, shall we continue in sin just because God's grace abounds? Should we continue doing whatever it is that breaks the heart of God just because God's going to be gracious? I mean, I know I can involve... I can, hey, listen, I can go involved and watch this inappropriate stuff. God's going to forgive me because as soon as I confess my sin, He's going to forgive me. 
I mean, I can keep telling lies at work about where these products are going because, after all, I mean, they got so much, they're not going to miss it, you know, but after all, as soon as I tell God I'm sorry, He's going to forgive me. If we continue in sin, just because we can go to God and say, I'm sorry and will you forgive me, we have cheapened the grace of God. We have taken His grace for granted. Shall we continue in sin because grace abounds? He says, God forbid. Some of your translations may say, may it never be so. We do not want to cheapen the grace that God has given to us and what He went through for our sakes. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26, He says, my son, give me your heart. That's what God wants. He wants our heart. He goes on to say, so in the Christian community, when the call to brotherly confession and forgiveness goes forth, it is a call to the great grace of God in the church. Who of us doesn't need God's grace? Who of us doesn't need it desperately daily? What is the characteristic of sin? I was reading this, I thought, wow, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was right on. He says, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws from him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And more deeply he becomes involved in it, and the more disastrous is his isolation. Let me give you an example of that. Let me read it one more time and give you an example of it. Sin demands to have a man by himself. And when I say man, put yourself in there, ladies, children, teenagers, young adults. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. But the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will his isolation be. Let me give you an example of this. Anybody that's involved in pornography, here's what I think I know about them. They're not saying, hey, here's my laptop. I think I'll just put it in the middle of the living room. Hey guys, come gather around. This is pretty cool. Doesn't happen, does it? See, anybody I've ever known that has confessed his addiction to pornography does it in secret. He tries to hide it from anybody that is near him. He doesn't want anybody to find out because when he does, he'll be ashamed of it. Anybody I know that's involved in drugs, they're not doing it in front of their brother and sister and children, right? Most of them are trying to do it in hiding, in secret, in private, where no one else will know about it and where hopefully nobody else will find out about it. Nobody sits there and says, hey, let's draw a line right here on the, on the card table. Let's do it. You know, make sure, hey, 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 wife, come on over here. Kids, come on over. Check this out. This is how dad does it. Say, that's insanity. And someone's saying, I know that one person that does that. <laughs> but the reality is, sin loves isolation. When we're doing something we know we should not do, nobody has to tell us it's wrong. Nobody has to tell us that, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You see, we do just the exact opposite. We try to hide it so that nobody can find out about it, and therefore I don't have to deal with it. But he says the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. 
in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And this can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks through the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Sin must be brought into the light. When we think about that, so true. How often can we come to church every week, the pious community that he's talking about, amongst other believers, spiritual people, spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet we're, in our private moments, addicted to sin. And we don't want anyone to know about it. But it's not until the sinfulness is brought to light that we begin to have victory through it. See, a person who loves his sin, regardless of what sin it may be, until he views it as God views it, and until he is willing to confess it and forsake it, will not have victory over it. But I do know this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? You have, as a believer, as a child of God, what it takes to attain victory. If you'll seek it. But in isolation, it will even become more destructive. And that's why he says, confess our trespasses, our sinfulness one to another. Why? Because it forces us to go to God, the one who can help us. You say, well, I don't need anyone else. And you're fooling yourself. How many of you have made a New Year's resolution about anything under the sun? I'm going to start losing weight. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start doing that. And it lasts for a day or two days or three days or five days a month. Maybe. Because by ourselves, we are weak. In fact, God's Word says it this way. Your sinfulness, your wickedness, your, your heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? All your righteousness are filthy rags. But when it comes to who we are before God, a holy God, we are nothing. And there's nothing. In, you know, if we could be good enough, what do we need God for? We can't do it on our own. And what I'm not saying is that you need to go to Anybody you see and say, oh, by the way, I want to tell you all the sins I'm struggling with this week. And, uh, you know, if you pray, great. If you don't, great. No. It forces the person that you are telling to go to God. And they need to have a life. Because it says the prayers of a, what kind of a man? What? Righteous. You see, I can't always tell who's righteous. But oftentimes, by the fruit, I can see who is unrighteous. But I can see that from time to time, God knits our hearts with people who have a genuine concern for our spiritual estate. And by the way, guys, ladies, you have a spiritual obligation to help those. You have a spiritual obligation, Galatians 6.1, to help. But in order for you to help and be able to help, you have to be healthy. You have to be walking with God. You have to be right with Him. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. God's Word says if I continue to hide my sin, I will not prosper. I will not be blessed. I'll not share in God's blessing. Oh, but how often do we try to hide what we're going through from others? Because we don't want anyone to know what our real sinfulness is. We don't want anyone to know. 
But let me just tell you, saying that my sin is different than your sin, my sin is not as bad as your sin, I mean, after all, you did this and I only did that, that is wrong. Because all sin breaks the heart of God. All sin breaks the heart of God. And until we are able to view that sin as God views it, nothing's going to change. So, the one thing that they practiced in these difficult days of living in prison as a small body of believers was to confess their sins one to another. That they could pray for one another and be healed. And realizing that the fervent prayer of a righteous man that just up the ante to say, I need to walk with God because my brother's depending on me to pray for him. My brother's counting on me to go before the throne of God and lift him up and to help him through the struggle that he's dealing with. I need to be what I need to be. And then as they would do that, they would enter into communion together as well. See, preparation for the Lord's table begins in one's mind and heart. Preparation for the Lord's table begins in one's mind and heart. And for in the mind, there is a consideration for the very reason that Jesus Christ went to the cross, to give atonement for our sin. From the heart should come a desire to love God with our whole being, which produces obedience. I might say some things that you may disagree with in this next aspect of it, but I want you to think with me just for a moment. Communion starts in the mind and the heart. Before I partake of the cup, before I ever take of the wafer, before I ever drink of the juice, it starts in my mind and my heart. Why? Because with my mind, I begin to realize, why do I do this? Why do I do this? Because I have sinfulness that only the blood of Jesus Christ can take away. Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and shed His blood that I might have forgiveness of sin. And you ought to think about that for a moment. I've heard some people say, well, that doesn't matter. Communion is a time of celebration. Yes, it is. By all means, it is. But it's also a time to remember why you are doing this. Because you are a sinner saved by the grace of God who has experienced forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. In fact, Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 26, if you would turn there just for a moment, in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 26. Oops, one page. He says this, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant in which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This very juice representing his blood. The wafer representing his body that was broken. And he said, I did this for you. Now, Catholicism would tell you that this wafer actually turns into the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's not true. It's a process called transubstantiation. This wafer is representative of the body of Jesus Christ. The juice doesn't turn into the blood. It represents the blood that was shed for you and I. 
for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He became the supreme sacrifice so no other sacrifice would be needed. He gave everything because we could give nothing. First Corinthians chapter 11, if you would turn over there just for a moment. First Corinthians chapter 11. It's a passage that I read often as we partake on a monthly basis of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew 26, but it's celebrated by His church in 1 Corinthians 11. And here's something interesting to think about. If you ever have some free time, go back and read through all of 1 Corinthians. You want to talk about messed up? Talk about a church not being perfect? Talk about people involved in sinfulness? The church of Corinth. Here's what he says right in the beginning. In verse 17 here. He says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. How would you imagine that? If I just got up here this morning and said, you guys are ridiculous. You guys are just unbelievable. I, I can't even praise you. There is nothing good at What would you think of the preacher who did that? You say, what is this guy taking this morning? What did he eat? What did he drink? This guy is out in left field this morning. He's, he's just like, he's, he's, rock, he's off his rocker. Paul came in knowing everything that he knew. And he says, I do not praise you guys. I'm thankful that I'm not with the church of Corinth at this moment. <laughs> I am really blessed. But here's what he says. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he says, I believe it, in part. He says, this guy doesn't like this guy, and this woman's upset with this woman, and this group doesn't like this group, and there's just divisions and fractions among you. He says, it's just obvious. I believe it. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. He said, even amongst the division, there are those who are going to rise as godly men and women who are going to do what's right. And through the division, the cream of the crop is going to rise. And then he goes on to say, verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat at the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So once again, he's just reiterating the fact. He says, you got some that are extremely wealthy. I mean, they're bringing their steak and their zweigels and their, you know, homemade Italian bread. And they're, I mean, they're just, you know, all the drinks and beverages, and man, they're just having a feast to die for. And over here, there's this family over here that has nothing. And they're kind of looking over there, and they're like, what are you looking at? He says, don't you guys know better than that? We're one family. This is a pitch-in. Everybody brings something, and we all enjoy, even if you didn't bring something. He goes, you think I'm going to praise you in this? Because I don't praise you. Here's what he says. So, let me get back to my premise in this. It is a time to celebrate. But it is also time to realize and to think with our minds, this sinfulness had a great price. It was Jesus Christ on the cross shedding His blood. 
verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. It is a time to remember what Jesus Christ has done. And not only remember what He did, remember why He did it. Because we had sinfulness within us that could only be atoned through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is why I say this. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He's come. Yes, we celebrate the life because we serve a living Savior. But He says every time we partake of this cup, every time we do this, He says you're proclaiming the Lord's death. You can't proclaim something you don't remember. We proclaim the Lord's death when He did. Someone told me last week, he says, I watched The Crucifixion of Christ, uh, that movie that came out many years ago. The, the, I can't remember the name. Mel Gibson's movie. The Passion of the Christ. He said, I was just amazed at how bloody Jesus was. And I said, you know, I don't think man can even depict what He went through on the cross for us. In fact, God's Word says that His visage was unrecognizable as a man. I, I can't imagine, and if you've ever been down south, or if I've been to Israel and I've seen some of those thorns that were pressed upon His head, ugh, it'll make you cringe just thinking about it. I, I, can't, I can't wrap my head around the agony and the pain that our Lord went through. Why? So that we could come together and have a happy, fam- happy church family? No. That's not why He did it. He did it because we had a sin debt we could not pay. Our sin, our sin nailed Him to the cross. And to say it's only a time of celebration, yes it is, but it's also a time of remembering why He went there. Why did He do this? It says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. And then here's the caution. Verse 27. Some people don't like to look at it this way, but I don't see any way around it. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I don't know fully what that means, folks, but I have an idea. An unworthy manner. I think an unworthy manner might possibly lead into what Romans says. Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? No. When you cheapen the grace of God, and someone said on Facebook, I shouldn't use that phrase because it's God's, God's grace is not cheap. Well, obviously not. We cheapen God's grace and make it non-effective when we take for granted what He did for us to give us that grace. The grace of God was costly. It was extremely expensive. It cost him everything. And so he says, Therefore, who eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? Once again, it starts in the mind. God, thank you. I, I, I'm just, for a moment, realizing what you've done for me. 
It was my sin that sent you to the cross. My sin that caused you to have to shed your blood that I might have forgiveness. If it's only a time of celebration, don't worry about the unworthiness. It says, whoever drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty. So it's important how we approach it. And then verse 28 says, but let a man examine himself. What does that mean? Everyone has a different idea, but examine means to examine. I don't know about you, but I take it serious that when I take the Lord's table and I'm sitting down here, no matter who's leading it, whether it's Pastor Jim or Pastor Mike, I'm saying, Lord, is there anything for which, any sin in my life that I've not dealt with? I want to examine myself. Because that sin price was costly. But it's only when my mind is engaged and my heart is engaged, because it says, my heart says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. A heart of love for God results in obedience to God. No other exception to that rule. My obedience tends itself to love from, a, from or is based out of a love for God. And if I don't love Him, then it doesn't matter. So He says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then He says a second time, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You can't mince the words. You can't redefine what simple definitions are. He says that a man examine himself, let a man judge himself, do not do this in an unworthy manner, don't take for granted what it costs our Lord and Savior to go to the cross, what it costs Him to shed His blood. It's a time to observe what God has done for us. And only when we begin to observe what God has done for us and to realize what He has done, can we truly celebrate the love of Jesus Christ because He loved us so much that He would do this for you and I. That's where the celebration comes in. That I can have, I can spend eternity with the Lord and Savior in all, in heaven for all eternity because of His grace and His mercy and His love. It says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Once again, the process. Now, I've never seen it happen. <laughs> I've told you the story about my friend who was sitting just over on the side of me, who was smushing his wafer and pouring juice into it, and I thought for certain the Lord's fire is going to come down and strike him dead right then and there. I, I, I mean, I was moving over close to my dad. Now, I don't know what the circumstance means fully. I have to admit. Because I've never seen anyone die in a church service because they took it in an unworthy manner. But I have to believe that God says, I want you to at least think it through. Just for a moment. Let a man examine himself. Let a man judge himself. And then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Don't do it in an unworthy manner. Because that does discourage our, our Lord. And we say, why do we wait for one another? We pass it out because we're one family. We eat together. Every Sunday I have the privilege of having my family at my house. Every Sunday. I love it. We, my wife and I live for Sundays. It's complete chaos. You got ten people trying to gather and get at the food. And, and there are many times that my wife and I just kind of stand back and wait. Every once in a while, if it's good, I'm jumping in. Well, it's always good, but 
But the reality is, the family. But when do we do that? We come together and we pray. We thank the Lord and then we partake. That's why we don't just pass out the elements and you're on your own now. We're a family. And as we come together as a family, we, as it says in verse 25, or 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We get to celebrate the risen Savior who shed his blood that we might have forgiveness of sin. That's, in my mind, James chapter 5, verse 16, confessing our faults one to another. We're encouraging one another to pray for one another so that we can walk in a life of victory. Both corporately and privately. We, walk, we want to walk in victory and experience God's grace and His mercy. And then we come together and particularly the Lord's table goes, we can get through anything because you know what? God is victorious. He gives us everything we need to, go, to walk in victory. So it's Yes, it's a time of celebration, but it's also a time of reflection. Realize, just for a moment, I'm so thankful for his shed blood. Amen? We cannot have forgiveness of sin without it. If you think you're good enough, you don't need God. You don't need to be here. But the fact is, we all need him. None of us are good enough. Well, we have the opportunity this morning to do as even Dietrich Bonhoeffer did with his small group of believers while he was imprisoned. Is to at least commune with one another. And I would encourage you even, find somebody that you know loves you and will pray for you and share with them so that you can have victory. I'm amazed that what he said about sin is absolutely true. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It, sin, withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And this can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart, and sin must be brought into the light. Folks, there are times that we need someone to pray for us. Say, hey, I'm struggling. It might be that you've got a relationship that is just broken. And you need someone to pray with you. It may be that you have an addiction. And you need someone to pray with you. It may be that you have a sinful habit that you just cannot break on your own. You need someone to pray with you. Do you realize that Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross that you might have victory over it? Do you understand that? He wants you. He loves you so much that he went to the cross for you. And he wants you to have victory. And we have an opportunity to, to rejoice and celebrate over what he's done over our sinfulness. Once again, based out of his love and out of our love, we walk in obedience towards him. So let's pray for just a moment and then we're going to partake of the Lord's table together. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you this morning. 
We thank you, Lord, that we could celebrate just for a moment the fact that you loved us so much. You loved us so much. Lord, that you would go to the cross, go through the, the, the suffering and the pain and the anguish that we might walk in victory, that we might walk in forgiveness. God, I pray that we would never take for granted your grace, never take for granted your love. But Lord, that we, each and every time we have this opportunity to celebrate, Lord, that we might just think back to your love that went all the way to the cross, that because we were sinners in need of a Savior, unable to save ourselves. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're a patient God, a long-suffering God, a God that is forbearing. Lord, you, you work with us and you remind us and you gently bring to our attention those things that need to be made right, all in patience and mercy and grace. God, I am unworthy of your love, yet made worthy through the blood. Lord, I realize that in and of myself there is no good thing. But yet, Lord, through your mercy and your grace, we walk in newness of life. God, thank you for your patience and your long-suffering. Thank you for your love that went all the way to the cross of Calvary. Thank you for each one here, Lord, who has experienced that grace, that mercy. Thank you for everyone that's here this morning, Lord, that has the free opportunity and the freedom to celebrate what you've done for us, Lord, through the Lord's table. We didn't have to stay in our sinfulness because you've offered us forgiveness. And we can celebrate that in your love. Lord, thank you.